Hey, all right, let's, so let's dig into Nehemiah chapter four today. It's gonna be a little bit of a different kind of a message today as I'm gonna bring an exegetical message, which is where we read through a text and just kind of draw out some practical interpretation or application to our lives of faith. So we're gonna read the whole chapter of Nehemiah 4. If you've never read a whole chapter, sat down and read a whole chapter of the Bible in your life, today's your day. You're gonna read a whole chapter of the Bible. Come on, it all in one sitting. But before we do, uh, just kind of set the, the scene a little bit. We're in a series called Cultural Revival. And it's what we desire to be as Rev City Church. There's many reasons why we're called Rev City, but one of them is that we desire to bring revival to our city as individuals encounter the love and the forgiveness and the goodness and the mercies of God and the power of God to bring life and to bring strength to restore uh, broken places. Revival at its truest sense is, is dead things coming back to life, weakened things being restored. Definitions of revival include these. If you go look it up, this is what you'll find. An improvement in the condition or strength of something or someone. An instance of something becoming popular, relevant, active, or important again. That's what we need in our culture. Is, is, is for faith in Christ, is the reverence for God to be restored, something becoming popular, relevant, active, or important again. A reawakening of activity or fervency or a restoration to physical, mental, or spiritual life, vitality, and success. And so come on, if that's what revival is, how many of you believe that's what our culture needs, and how many you wanna see some of that for your own life, and your own marriage, your own family, for your children? Psalm 85, six, the Bible also speaks of revival. Won't you revive us again so your people can rejoice in you? Revive us again, God. It implies that something that's been lost, something that's, that we've drifted from can be restored if we will seek God and we will do our part and we will continue to seek God and then we'll do our part and then we'll continue to seek God and then do our part. Our culture can be revived to life in Christ. So that's the series that we're in and this is one of the most powerful biblical stories of revival being brought to a people, to a city. It's the story of Nehemiah who was a part of the, the Babylonian exile of the people of God. Think Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were individuals who were also a part of this great Babylonian exile where the city, the people of Judah and the city of Jerusalem has been ransacked, the walls brought down, the gates burned, the city destroyed, and the people exiled to Babylonian rule. Uh, um, Nehemiah finds himself living under a Persian king named Artaxerxes. And he's in the city of Susa, which is the capital of modern-day Iran. And he's been promoted, even though he's, he's in captivity. God did it with Daniel. God did it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God's done it with Nehemiah. Even though he's in captivity, he's been elevated to a place of prominence and influence in the culture of the day. And I'm just telling you, you might not have everything going for you, but when you have the favor of God on your life, there's, nothing, there's no limits on what God can do in your life. You need to understand that today. And that's what God's done in Nehemiah's life. He's elevated him. He's the, he's, he's the right-hand man to the king. He's the cupbearer to the king. And there are some men who come, who pass through the city of, of Susa. And, and one of them, his name is, uh, let's see, where's the name? Haniah. And Haniah and Nehemiah have a conversation. And Nehemiah says, Haniah, tell me, how are the people back in the city of Jerusalem? What's the condition of those who, are, who remain as remnants in the city of Jerusalem after many of the people were captured in exile? And Haniah tells him a grievous story. He says, it's, it's bad. 
He said, the people are in disgrace. The walls remain in shambles. The gate remains burned. It's not good, Nehemiah. The condition of Jerusalem is not good. And Nehemiah, despite the fact that he's been elevated to a place of, of prominence and comfort in many ways in his life, it begins to grieve his heart. The condition of the people, the condition of the culture, the condition of his city, the condition of his nation, the condition of the families begins to grieve his heart. And I believe it's what God is calling us to, is that we would look around and see people struggling, hurting, far from God, desperate, de depressed, uh, uh, dealing with confusion in their life, and that our heart would not judge but begin to be moved with compassion. Nehemiah's heart is moved with compassion. If you go read the story, he begins to go and fast and begins to pray. And God begins to stir his heart that he should not just care about something, but he should do something. And so he goes to his boss, the king, and, he, and, he said, and, 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 and he's, he's serving in his normal capacity. And the king says, why are you so sad, Nehemiah? I've never seen you sad in my presence before, which speaks to one of the reasons that Nehemiah maybe had been promoted. He had a good attitude. And he says, why have you been so sad? And, and Nehemiah, it opens the door for Nehemiah to begin to say, because I've heard about the condition of my city and my people. And he begins to share and ask the, ask the king for favor. And the long story short is the king grants him favor. The king writes him letters of permission to go and travel to the city of Jerusalem and even provide for some of the resources that are gonna be needed for the project that lies when he arrives in Jerusalem. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, begins to cast vision. He begins to gather people. He begins to share. He begins to inspire. He begins to rally. Come on, don't underestimate the power of one man, one woman who gets a vision from God and what you could do when you begin to share it with other people and begin to say, come on, our city's not too far lost. Our country's not too far gone. There's hope for your marriage. There's hope for your family. People begin to hear the spirit of faith that Nehemiah has carried. Again, it's been birthed in fasting and prayer and moved with compassion for what's happened in the city. And so people begin to rally around the vision to begin to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. That's where we pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter four. Come on, that was just a preview right there. So Nehemiah chapter four, before we get into um, uh, the actual scripture, let's just pray briefly. I'll pray over us corporately. You pray over yourself individually. As much as I care for your personal, unique circumstances, the opportunities and the opposition, God cares even more. Today he wants to speak to you, encourage you, strengthen you, revive you in the ways that you need to be revived in your faith today. So Father, that's our prayer today. Would you come and move in this place? Would you speak to your people, Lord? Would you strengthen your people, God, today? Would you use an imperfect preacher, an imperfect message to reveal the heart of a perfect father today in Jesus' mighty name? Anyone who's hurting, wounded, weak, uh, Lord, strengthen them, God, every, in every area of life, God, marriage, family, relationships, physical bodies, God. In Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you, God, that your heart is to, is to reveal your heart, to, to, to bring hope, freedom, courage, strength, Fresh faith for our future in Jesus' mighty name. And come on, all God's people said. Amen. All right, so now buckle up because we're gonna read this chapter and then we're gonna go back and there's eight scriptures that I wanna draw out of the chapter and we're gonna talk about how God could speak to us through these scriptures to the life that he's calling us to live out in our lives of faith today. So picking it up, verse one, Nehemiah chapter four. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they really restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring these stones back to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite who was at his side said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall 
of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. This is the people of God's response. Turn their insults back upon their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height, and the people worked with all of their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them. We will kill them and put, their, put an end to the work. But the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. And therefore, Nehemiah says, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families. Your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes, other translation includes your brothers. And when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. And from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. And the officers posted themselves behind the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held the weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, the work is extensive, it's spread out. We're widely separated from each other among the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there for our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding the spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. And at that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. So the rest of the story is they're successful in spite of the fact that they were ridiculed and discouraged. It says they ridiculed them. What do they think they're building? Even a fox would knock it down. And I'm just gonna encourage you something today. I say often anywhere where there's power, potential, or promise, you better just predetermine there's gonna be opposition. And as you step out in faith, man of God, woman of God, to build your life of faith, to build your family on faith, to raise your children in faith, especially in the culture that we live in today, you might as well predetermine there's gonna be opposition. There's gonna be potentially even ridicule. And, and I wanna encourage you something today, the same way you could predetermine that there's gonna be some opposition, that maybe it's not gonna be the popular thing, that we're gonna have to be willing to stand out, that we're gonna have to be willing to swim upstream, that we're gonna have to be willing to take a minority position when the world is kind of turning from God and, 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 and rejecting the truth of God and resisting anything and everything that has to do with biblical morality. 
we ought to also predetermine something else. And that's what the people of, of Nehemiah did. The same thing we will do when we experience discouragement, doubt, or ridicule. We'll turn to God in prayer to ask him for strength to endure. It's what they did. They, they were ridiculed and they said, the very next verse said, hear us, O God, for we are despised. Their response was to call a prayer meeting. And I'm so glad that they called a prayer meeting instead of a committee meeting. Because I'm sure if they had held a vote, they could have found some folks to come and stir up doubt and unbelief about should we really be doing this and what, are, what, what could happen to us. And I'm telling you, in your life of faith, you need to not take a popularity poll of what's popular in the culture. I promise you, if you lick your finger and hold it up in the air, the winds are blowing contrary to the word and the ways of God. But when you get in the presence of God, there's a strength that you can apprehend to begin to persevere, to rebuild your life of faith, to rebuild the walls around your family. In the face of discouragement, they prayed, and God strengthens the people. And in verse six, it says, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all of their heart. A couple truths here, it's gonna take everything in your heart. When our hearts are divided, when our hearts are distracted, it's hard for us to be effective in building the life that God's called us to build. Where's your heart divided? Where's your heart distracted? And today, maybe the invitation of God is to come back to God with your whole heart. Come back to serving him, not just believing in him. And it says, though, that the people worked with their whole heart, but did you catch something that you might could overlook? It read, they had built it to half its height. And I think this is significant because here's the thing we could draw from it is that almost everyone's excited when there's a new idea, a fresh vision, an exciting goal. Almost everyone's excited at the beginning of the relationship or the marriage. Come on, everyone is enthused about the possibilities when, the, when that woman's dressed in that beautiful white dress and the champagne is, is waiting to be celebrated and, and all those things, everyone's excited. And everyone's excited at the end of a project when the ribbon cutting is about to happen, but the challenge, the place of, of, of opposition, the place where we're the most at risk of giving in or caving in is in the middle. In those moments where the, it seems mundane, it seems rote, you're just going through the motions of what it looks like to be married and have three kids and be running all around different ways, and it's in those places that you can experience discouragement, doubt, depression, or despair when the enemy comes and says, is it really worth it? And I'm just telling you, when you're in the middle of building the marriage, when you're in the middle of raising the children, when you're in the middle of the dream, building the dream that God's given you, and maybe things begin to kind of get a little less exciting. I wanna encourage you, the, the thing that God has called you to do is still as important in that moment as it was in the beginning or as it will be in the end. And you won't get to the end if you don't persevere through the middle. They had built it halfway. And I think it's interesting that they, 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 they noted that. They, were, they had started something and there was an excitement, there was an enthusiasm, and now their responsibility was to endure. Galatians 6, 9, let us not get tired of doing what is good. Parents, don't get tired of doing what is good. You might not be seeing the results yet, but I promise you, the word of God is taking a hold and it will have an effect on the lives of those kids. Someday you'll be glad that you persevered and continued to raise them up, that you persevered and you continued to drag them to church, that you persevered and you continued to believe and pray in faith over their lives. We gotta persevere. If we don't get tired of doing what's good at the right time, we'll reap a harvest, God's word says. Hebrews 10.36 says, patient endurance is what you need now. 
so that you will continue to do God's will. And then when, if you apply patience and endurance, you'll receive all that God has promised. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised, Hebrews 10, 36. It says that they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. And I think it's interesting, basically it's showing there were two strategies that they had developed to interfere and to disrupt and to hopefully halt the progress of the people of God towards rebuilding the city and the people of God, to fight against them and to stir up trouble. And it's interesting, but I actually believe that the second strategy was the more dangerous strategy. That yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, they could come and they could maybe fight and kill or whatever, but they, they, they had a second strategy and it was to stir up trouble, to come in and kind of introduce doubt or division amongst the people. And here's why it was important, because what God had called them to do was bigger than any one person or any small group of people could do on their own. This was gonna call for a team effort. This was gonna call for unity. And come on, it's important to what God's calling us to do and to be and to imagine as a church. It's bigger than what one preacher behind a pulpit could do. It's bigger than what, what one small group of leaders can do. It's gonna require us to a life of unity, to a life of, of linking arms and realizing we're called to be together. We're called to pray together. We're called to serve together. We're called to build together. Unity is important in the house of God. And here's what I look, I realize as I look around. There are some causes and some agendas that are very demonic, very ungodly in our culture today, but they are very unified, and so they're having a very strong effect against our culture. And I look up at the church, and we're as divided as any organization in the history of the world has ever been. Because we've allowed trivial things to interrupt the, the unity around the major thing, which is Jesus, the cross of Jesus, and preaching Christ crucified, and not just crucified, but resurrected again, and that he is the way and the truth and the life, and that he loves and he forgives and he makes a way for a new life. Come on, the church has become so disunified. We need to see churches individually and collectively begin to rally around the main concept of the gospel, which is Jesus is Lord and Savior, the one way to the Father. He loves you, he forgives you, he makes your life new, he makes your life good. Yeah. Psalm 133, how good and pleasant is it when people live together in unity. For harmony, unity, peace is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head. It ran down upon his beard and on the border of his robe. It is as the dew of Mount Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there, where the place where there's unity amongst brethren is where the Lord bestows, your translation might say, commands his blessing, even life forevermore. And I, I don't know about you, but I just think it's time that the church begins to realize how critical it is that we take a stand, how critical it is for us to be unified, how critical it is for us, for every church member to go, come on, go all in. To, to make yourself available, to not just attend occasionally, but to come on and say, come on, we've gotta be a part. We're part of the body of Christ. We're part of the answer for society. We're part of the hope for the world. 
And it's time for us to get serious about this thing. Come on, let, how grievous is it that churches have been separated or divided by decisions over what color the carpet should be or what, what, what uh, curriculum we should use back here or whatever. I mean, we ought to be unified. Let's, let's say, hey, come on, we, we can agree to disagree about some things that are trivial because we agree wholeheartedly that Jesus is the hope for our community, for our schools, for our culture, for our nation. Come on, if you believe it, say amen. It says we, we're, we could go fight against them or we could stir up a little trouble. The Bible says real clearly in Proverbs 6, there are six things the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination to him. So it, makes a, it adds kind of an added emphasis on the seventh thing. You know what the seventh thing is? Someone who sows discord amongst the brethren. And can we just agree that if God hates it, we ought to hate it as well? And can we also agree that it's a scheme that the enemy tries to introduce and that we can all, if we don't watch ourselves, could all be used to partner with the enemy when we just kind of have a little bit of a, oh, is that really what we should be doing as a church or what? And we begin to operate, we begin to partner with that spirit of the enemy that tries to come and bring division because he understands that a divided church will never be a conquering church. We've got to unify and rally ourselves. He said, let's come and fight against them. Let's come and stir up trouble. Acts chapter two opens and concludes with powerful statements of unity. And in the beginning of the chapter, it says that the people were gathered together in one accord, not talking about a Honda, but talking about the spirit of unity. They were in one accord, one mind, one heart. They were praying, they were fasting, they were seeking God, they were believing God at his word. And in that moment, that was the atmosphere that God poured out his spirit, birthed the New Testament church in power. And at the end of the chapter, it concludes with the same statement Chapter, verse 46, what, what we just talked about the day of Pentecost is verse one. Verse 46, go look at it for yourself. It's the end of the chapter, and here's what it says. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, which was in the church, and breaking bread from house to house. Come on, that's, they were having life groups. And it, so they would gather in the church, and then they would go and they would have life groups, but they were all in one accord. With gladness, they ate their food with simplicity of heart, just the simplicity of knowing that Jesus had forgiven them and loved them and brought them home, brought them out of religious rules and regulations into a relationship with God. They were just celebrating the simplicity of, man, isn't it cool that we are all brothers and sisters, saved, loved, forgiven in Christ Jesus? And let's not worry, you come from this background, I come from this background, I've got this preference, you've got this preference, but come on, let's just rally around what God has done in our life through Christ. And in that atmosphere, the atmosphere of unity, the spirit of God birthed the New Testament church in power. And if you go read the context of that last paragraph, it's amazing to see what happened. In one church service, the Bible says right there, 3,000 people got saved. There were signs, there were miracles, there were wonders, there were healings. People were selling things and bringing it so that the church would have resources. It says not one person had a need because God was moving so powerfully. Why? Because there was unity. They were gathered together in one accord. Here's what unity is not. It's not conformity. The body is comprised of many members, the word of God says. It's not conformity. Come on, we ought to embrace the diversity of God's kingdom. Come on, young and old and black and white and every shade in between, we ought to embrace the diversity, people with different backgrounds, people with different experiences, but the thing that unifies us is our commitment to this book and to living for Jesus Christ because we realize that what else can we do after he's done everything that only he could do in our lives? It's not conformity. And it talks about they're, they're, they're rebuilding this wall with stones. And I read that and I thought, you know what? That's a powerful, there's a powerful truth to be extracted from that. Because the Bible says very clearly 
in the book of 1 Peter chapter two that you, speaking of you and I, that we are living stones. We're living stones being built up into a spiritual house. The church of Jesus Christ is not a building, a denomination, or an organization. It is a group. It is a gathering of believers. The Bible says living stones. If the government comes and takes away this building from us someday, I pray it doesn't happen, but I'm telling you, you know what will happen? We'll continue to be the church because the church is not the building. The church is living stones. But it says living stones. It, you know what's interesting? It, did, it does not say bricks, which are generally kind of conformed into the same shape and kind of generally, I mean, I know there's a little bit of diversity maybe of the shade or the tone or the texture of bricks, but for the most part, when you're building something with bricks, they all pretty much look the same. Same shape, same tone. And he says, I I'm building with stones. I not living bricks, living stones. And there's a, there's a passage in the Old Testament that makes this even more powerful. This isn't just kind of something that Pastor T read. I thought, oh, isn't that kind of a cool observation? Watch this, check this out. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 25. This is God himself speaking. And he says this, if you use stones to build my altar, watch what he says, use only natural uncut stones. Do not shape the stones with a tool for that would make the altar unfit for holy use. Isn't that powerful? Wouldn't you think it would be the otherwise? Wouldn't you think that, 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 that if God was kind of a religious God worried about appearances, he would say, if you make an altar for me, make sure that you take those raggedy old stones that are odd shaped and are kind of misshaped and, and kind of have, they look, it looks kind of, where'd that stone come from? Wouldn't you think that a religious God would say, be sure to take those stones and make sure you wash them and you scrub them and you shape them and you polish them before you use them for my purposes? But he said the very opposite. He said the very opposite. And then he said, and remember, we're living stones being built into a spiritual house, remember. And he said the very opposite, why? Because I think he realized I'm gonna build my church not on a bunch of perfect, polished, religious people. I'm gonna build my church with people who have some rough edges, who came from, from a dark place, from a deep place. And when that thing begins to be built with stones of all different shape and all different hues and all different backgrounds brought in and mined out of different places, come on, it's gonna begin to be a beautiful tapestry of what only I can do. I'm a God of grace and mercy and restoration and forgiveness and I'm gathering every nation tribe and tongue, different backgrounds, different races, different colors, different shapes, and I'm building them together as a spiritual house for my glory. Come on, you might, don't let, don't let the enemy, the enemy might have convinced you you're kind of odd shaped or odd colored. Come on, it's symbolism. <laughs> There's a shape in the spiritual house that God's building right here that is perfectly shaped just for you to fit into it. Spiritual stones, living stones, So let's go fight against them. Let's go stir up trouble amongst them. Can we just uh, agree that one of the things that we're gonna fight for, and there's many of them. I mean, we, when we fight, we fight spiritually, remember. Our weapons are not the weapons of the world and our enemies are not flesh and blood. We don't fight against people. We're fighting a spiritual battle. We can have compassion for people. But there's a lot of things we need to fight against, but can we agree that one of the things we're gonna fight for as a church family is we're gonna fight for peace. We're gonna fight for unity. We're gonna recognize and realize above our own preferences or above our hurt feelings or this or that or the other. It's not, and again, it's not conformity and it's also not false or forced harmony. When we have disagreements, when we have misunderstandings, let's talk about it. I, I promise you, there's a grace. If we're willing to do it, there's a grace for God to heal it. 
It's not forced conformity and it's not false harmony. It's us saying, God, we realize and we recognize what you've called us to do and be as a church is more important than our own opinions or preferences. Let's lay some things down so that we can rally together in unity. And come on, keep building the wall, restoring the wall that God has called us to restore in our city, in our community, in our families, in this church. Colossians 3, for time's sake, I've not skipped it, but I just, the Holy Spirit just wouldn't let me do it. Since God chose you to be his holy people that he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Catch this, make allowance for each other's faults. For the sharp edges on the stone that, of someone's life. He says, Make allowances for one another's faults. You're gonna have to understand when, it's part of what God calls us to do in marriage and church relationships. Come on, he's sharpening us. My daughter for Christmas, she got a stone tumbler, a National Geographic stone tumbler, and we had these five or six or seven really jagged rocks, and she put them in the stone tumbler, and that thing's just been grinding away. Have anyone ever seen one of those in a science project or in a science, it's grinding away, it's grinding away. She opened it up the other day, and what were once these jagged, Rocks are now smooth, polished gemstones. Why? Because there were multiple rocks in that tumbler. If you put one rock in that tumbler, it would just tumble around by itself and it would remain in the same exact shape and form that it was. But when you put two, three, four, five, six, seven rocks in there, those rocks, like the word of God says, iron is sharpening iron, those rocks are working on each other. Those rocks are so, hey, hey, you got a jagged edge over here. That's okay, I have grace for you because I got a jagged edge over here. Thanks for having grace for me. I'll have grace for you and maybe I can tell you something that God's shown me in his word that'll help you grow in the place where I've had to grow previously in this season. We need each other is the point. And so let me read on. Have grace and make allowances for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. For remember the Lord forgave you so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love which binds us together, perfect harmony. Man, come on, let this church be filled with love for one another and for Jesus. And let, it, let us protect it, fiercely defend it. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you're called to live in peace and always be thankful. That's, when the enemy comes to try to stir up trouble, can we realize it's, it's an it's a ancient strategy. It's the strategy he was trying to use right here. And can we begin to shut the door on the devil? Uh, verse nine, point six but we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. And, and I read that and I just thought, man, that's, that's, that's powerful. They, they prayed and they did. <laughs> they prayed and they did. They prayed and they posted a guard. And I heard something one time and I, 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 it's kind of, you gotta be careful how you interpret it, but I think there's a powerful truth to be found in it because we're called to, to live out our life of faith. But I heard someone say, you need to pray like it depends on God and you need to work like it depends on you. And I thought, man, there's something there because I, I just really believe that God is the one who's gonna get the glory. God is the one who's gonna bring the healing. God is the one who's going to, to give me the grace or the strength. But almost inevitably, there's a part that he calls me to play as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a friend, as a brother, as a leader. There's something he's called me to do. There's something he's called me to say. There's a place where he's called me to show up and serve and lend my strengths and do what God's enabled me to do. And it says, we prayed and we posted a guard. They prayed and they did. And I also think it's powerfully profound about the fact that they posted a guard. And I'm just gonna tell you, 
today that more than ever, with the technology, with the social media, with the way that things are able to be immediately interjected or bombarded into our life, more than ever, we need to practically, we need to pray and we need to obey, but we need to also say, God, what are the guards that you would have me to put around my own life? What are the guards you would have me to put around my marriage? And especially to parents, what are the guards that we are called to put around our kids? Because I'm telling you more and more and more and more, there are evil, ungodly, demonic agendas that are being leveraged against our kids. And, and, and we have a responsibility to say, God, would you give me wisdom? God, would you give me a grace? God, would you give me insight? Come on, pray, and then watch what God says and watch what God shows you and use discernment as a parent. Put some guardrails up around your, your, your kids and the way they interact with one another on devices or the way that they, they come and go. Put some guardrails up. You, above being their friend, you're called to be their guardian and their parent. And so we're gonna have to, I mean, again, more and more, how many believe that this, this little part of this message is more important today than maybe it ever has been? As parents and, and as, as believers, we're gonna have to put some guardrails up in our lives. They prayed and they posted a guard. Number seven, verse 10, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. And I just read that, and I thought, man, there's some people who are so discouraged that they don't even know where to start because it just, it's like, where do I even start? There's so many. Have you ever uh, been in a, assigned to clean up a dirty room and it's been so dirty, so many toys on the floor, so many, or how, where are my dads at who have ever been at home without the, without the wife and you've got the kids and you've, uh, you've made the worst decision in the history of the world to make pancakes, you know, or whatever, instead of just ordering pizza? And you look around, it's like, what did I do? This kitchen never looks like this when mom's home and we're cooking pancakes, you know? I mean, it's like, how did batter get over there? How did flour get on the ceiling fan? You know, it's like, what happened here? And you just, I, I, know, I don't know about you, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I, I've been in places practically where I've looked around and thought, I don't even know where to start. And the Lord just said, spiritually, there's some people in your marriage or in your family or in your life of faith, you look around and you would, you would know, man, I need to do some things, I need to pray, I need to obey, but you look around and you say, I don't even know where to start. There's just so much rubble around. And I just felt encouraged to come and tell you that you, the way that you're gonna start is just by saying, God, would you just help me to know one step to take today? Just one step, just one item of obedience. Just help me, Lord, just give me wisdom to just know, oh, we're gonna start. The way this is gonna be accomplished is just one toy at a time. <laughs> I'm gonna start at that end of the room and I'm just gonna start making my way. And, and if I get pushed back or something else gets, I get distracted or discouraged, come on, I'm just gonna keep moving forward. And I promise you, if you'll just be, begin to take small steps, don't let the enemy discourage you from just starting today. Maybe it looks like just a fresh commitment to the house of God. Maybe it looks like dusting off your Bible and just saying, I'm gonna read one scripture a day and trust God's gonna speak something to me and then I'm gonna say, how can I begin to apply that to my life? And I just promise you, the Bible says that God does not despise the day of small beginnings. He loves to see the work begin, and in your life, don't allow the enemy to tell you that you're too far gone or it's too far lost. Begin to just take steps of faith. We receive that today. Lastly, number eight, last, last principle here, verse 13. Therefore, I stationed some of them behind the lowest points of the walls, posting them by families. There's a, there's a specific call upon your families. Isn't that interesting? He posted them by, by families. Now, wouldn't you think that he might have said, I need everyone that is tall over here. I need everyone who is an archer over here. No, he, he posted them by families. 
And, and his heart is for families to thrive. His heart is for families. And I'm just telling you, there's something about gathering your family around the purposes of God. And just saying, hey, as for me and my house, there's some other people that are gonna decide not to serve God, and more and more and more and more, but as for us, as for me, as for our house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're gonna, we're gonna fight the fight of faith. And, and, and actually, there's one more place I wanna read to you. It's verse 16 to verse 18, and it says, from that day on, Half my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. And those who carried the materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Those who carried the materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. They did their work with one hand and they held their weapon in the other. They did their work with one hand and they held their weapon in the other. Whatever God's called you to do, whatever God's called you to be and become, whatever he's called you to, he's called you to do your work with one hand and he's calling you once again in a new way or a rededicated way to hold your weapon in the other. This is your weapon right here. The word of God, the heart of God, the promises of God to you. And I'm telling you, if we as the people of God will do the same thing, there's a victory, there's a completion, there's a, there, we might experience some discouragement, we might experience uh, uh, some, some people despising us, whatever, but I promise you, if we'll unify, if we'll rally, if we'll pray to seek God for the strength to overcome the encouragement, if we'll gather together, if we'll unify and rally our families, if we'll, if we'll begin to fight, if we'll begin to do our work, if we'll begin to trust and lean upon this word and what it says about our lives, there's a completion, there's a restored wall, there's a rebuilt city, there's a restored marriage, there's a reunified family on the other side of that commitment. I can't tell you exactly when it's gonna happen, but I promise you, the heart of God towards Nehemiah and his people is the heart of God towards you today. Watch what he'll do in your life. Would you stand to your feet today? And as you're standing, just do what we often do. Would you just ask the Lord to say, Lord, what are you speaking to me? What are you speaking to me today? What are you highlighting to me today? What are you reminding me of today? What did you reveal to me today? Now, what's my part to go and to do my part? What, am I called to post a guard? Am I called to, to begin to rally my family? Am I called to go and bring unity in a relationship that's been strained or divided? What, what's my part today, God, to this? Am I call, are you calling me back into your word so that I can begin to be equipped with your word, which is the sword of the spirit? So that when the enemy begins to come against my heart or my mind or my marriage or my children, I'm equipped to stand, I'm equipped to fight better than I have been before. What's God speaking to you? Just ask him, come on, right there, really, come on, can we lean in today? What, would you lean in right there? I wanna, in fact, I wanna do something even a little different. I'm just gonna give you a little bit of space right here. I'm, not, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna quit talking, I want you to hear from God. Just ask him, what are you speaking to me? started with Nehemiah's heart being moved with compassion, the willingness to step out from his comfortable place, his complacent place. I mean, it would have been a lot easier to just stay in that castle 
continue to serve the king. He was the right-hand man. He was willing to step into a battle. He was willing to go on a journey. He was willing to take some risks, get uncomfortable. Man, think about all the people that were blessed. Think about the families. Think about the course of history that was altered because one man, because one woman captures the heart of God for his or her family, community, church, begins to say, here I am, God, you send me. I, I, I wanna do my part. We begin to rally in unity. It's like a symphony. Many notes, many instruments. No one wants to hear one instrument playing the same note all the time. We come together, we rally in unity. You bring your, your note, you play your part. Come on, watch what God can begin to do. Paint a beautiful tapestry. Release the sound of a beautiful symphony over our city, over our community. It's gonna draw people. It's gonna draw people. Thank you, Lord. Man, I just, I, I pray over you today that God would strengthen you as men, strengthen you as women. I pray that God would begin to rebuild something in your life today. He's gonna call you to prayer, but then he's gonna give you an assignment. And would you just grab a hold of whatever it is and just thank him for the grace to keep doing it? Would you commit to brotherhood and sisterhood in a new way in this season so that if you get discouraged or you begin to doubt there's someone right there that's not too far off to just say, hey, I, I wanna come alongside you. I wanna help you keep moving forward in your journey of faith to see God rebuild what he's doing in your life. So just stay in that posture of receiving and like we do always before we close our service and worship, just wanna give people the opportunity to, to say yes to Jesus, to come back home to their heavenly father. And maybe you're here today and you've never made a declaration of faith in Jesus Christ, received what the Bible describes as a free gift of salvation. You don't get right or good to get God. You say yes to the free gift of salvation and God just welcomes you into relationship with him. He washes away all your sin. He makes you new, he makes you whole. He gives you the opportunity to experience what the Bible describes as a, re as a born again life, a new start, a fresh lease on life. And so maybe that's you today. This is your time, this is your day to say yes to Jesus for maybe even the first time. Or maybe you're, you've drifted from God. You once knew him, loved him, maybe even served him, but you've just drifted from God, drifted from church, and today you're what the Bible would describe as a prodigal son or daughter. And in that parable, that son who went and tried to live it his own way, God knew how it was gonna end up. The father knew that there was a moment in time where he would end up at the end of himself and the end of his funds and the end of his friends. And, and in that moment, that prodigal son realized, man, what am I doing? Maybe I can go back home and God, will, and my father will just take me back just as a slave or a servant in his house. But that was not the father's heart. The father was looking for, longing for, anticipating the day where that son would just take one step back onto his property. If you go reread the parable, the father went running, arms open, and welcomed that child back into relationship didn't hold him or her to an account for all the things he had done or said, just said, come on, I'm just glad you're home. I welcome you home. Maybe there's some things we could deal with down the line, but right now my heart and my hope and my concern is just welcoming you back home as my child. That's the posture of the father toward you today if you're a prodigal son or daughter. So, so right now, heads bowed, eyes closed, just give people privacy to just say yes. And, and I wanna, here's what I wanna ask you to do, just a simple but powerful outward sign of an inward work that God's doing in your heart 
And I wanna ask you, would you be willing, we're not gonna make you come down here, put you on the spot, but what I do wanna ask you to do, would you be willing to raise your hand towards your father and just say, that's me, I need forgiveness, that's me. I need to come back home into a relationship with my father in this room and online. I think it would be powerfully important. Just take a, take a step, take this moment, just lift your hand towards heaven. Say, that's me. Thank you, Lord, for these precious people. Thank you, Lord, for what the hands represent, God, just a, a heart that's being drawn back into a relationship with you. Lord, that you're clearing out the rubble of life, Lord. You're, you're helping, you're gonna rebuild, you're gonna restore, Lord, the walls of their heart, Lord, where things have been broken down, God. You're a God of renew, renewal, new life. You're reviving them to life in Christ right now. If you raised your hand, you can lower it. And here's what we do. We pray this prayer with you because we wanna show you there's a church family that wants to come alongside you. And it also just every week reminds us, even as we're growing in our faith, we never graduate from grace. So come on, pray this prayer. Some amazing people said yes to Jesus today. Pray it with some boldness today. Repeat after me, say, Father, in Jesus' name, I recognize my need for a savior. And I thank you for sending Jesus to pay the price that I couldn't pay, to make a way that I might have a new life and a fresh start. And I give you my life. I give you my trust. And because of Jesus, come on, say this part loudly, I'll never be the same. I'll never be the same. Hey, come on, let's rejoice with all of heaven. Hey, let's worship God together one more time. Come on, he's building, he's rebuilding, he's restoring our lives. Come on, the best is yet to come. Let's, let's trust him by faith. Let's unify, trust what God's gonna do. Let's worship him one more time, then we'll come, we'll dismiss you.